silly, stupid, irrational, simple, wicked, hateful, obstinate, antisocial, extravagant, perverse, a threat to social order. These were some of the words used to describe the early book of Acts church. But the question is why? Why was Rome so threatened by these new Jesus followers? What was it about this new religious movement that threatened the most powerful empire in the world? My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. See, pagan writers, they typically refer to Christians as dissonant and out of step with the larger culture of the time in some way. In fact, in the early 2nd century, the Roman writer Tacitus described how Nero sought to deflect accusations that he himself was responsible for the fire that destroyed Rome in 64 AD. Tacitus says that Nero blamed Christians for the fire and then launched basically a religious genocide against them. And in this account, Tacitus justifies Nero by saying that Christians, we hated their gods. We hated them for their abominations. They promoted a deadly and a dangerous superstition. And so under Nero's orders, an immense multitude, I quote, an immense multitude of Christians were arrested and were convicted, again, I quote, Tacitus right now, a hatred of the human race. And then, upon that conviction, members of this early church were subjected to some of the most horrific forms of torture and death. They were torn apart by dogs, nailed to crosses, and set alight as human torches. And it's not just Tacitus and Nero. There, there are a host of other Roman leaders too, like Pliny and Trajan. Pliny admits that when he was set to investigate Christianity, and the explosion of it in the empire, he found no evidence of any crime being committed. And all of the crazy and wild accusations about Christians being these perverse and horrible people, there was no evidence. It simply was not true. But still, he confidently proceeded to torture and execute those that would remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And what we know from Pliny and Trajan's later letters is that in already in, in the very early moments of the church, the Roman Empire was literally making it up as they went along. They were making up rules, making up laws, and enforcement of laws that actually weren't even real laws yet. And it was all in response to the church. Larry, Dr. Larry Hurtado, he says, this has never happened before. The treatment of Christians and the radical measures to try to stamp them out had never been done in the empire until they were done to the church. This means that in the minds of the Roman Empire that the church was something so new, so different, that it required on-the-spot modified measures to deal with its threat. What we know from history is that to the pagans, Christianity is in a category all by itself. They were deliberately targeted. But the question again is why? Why would the Roman Empire go so far 
go so out of their way to target and punish one particular stream of religious thought in an empire that claimed to be tolerant to diversity. And there's two reasons why. There's two reasons why I believe that Rome hated them and why the church stood out against all of the other religious movements. They stuck out. We're going to talk about two of those things today. The first one is that Christians were forsaking the gods. And in the next episode, we're going to go right down the rabbit trail of what that meant. But here's a basic intro. The early church was radically monotheistic. This means they didn't just say we worship only one God. They said there is only one God. And everyone should worship him alone. All the other gods are fake. Now, why is this so offensive? Was it that the Romans were so radically devoted to their religion? The answer to that would be no. Because when you go to Rome, the pantheon is dedicated, and I quote, to all the deities in general. To all the deities in general. You go to the pantheon and you'd be like, oh man, this is a great place. Who's this for? All the deities in general. Oh, which deities? All of them. All of the gods. And they had so many gods. There were household gods and members of a family would gather around and express solidarity by offering devotion to those gods. There was the god of the bricklayers, the god of the non-commissioned officers, the god of the commissioned officers, the god of that city or that region. I mean, you name it, they had a god for it. And so to understand this Roman pagan mind, we've got to rid ourselves of the modern idea of religion, which actually comes from Christianity, where we define religion as a system of belief and doctrine that informs life. That was not the case for the pagans. We also got to get rid of the modern notion, this doesn't come from Christianity, it comes from the Enlightenment period, that religion is a specific area of life, that you got your work life and then you got you know, there are other subjects out there that you could study like economics and, you know, politics. And then there's religion over here in its own little private pocket. That was not the case in Rome as well. In the Roman world, religion was not theology but worship. Specific rituals and practices that invaded every area of life. So you would worship in everything. They would have parades and festivals. They would have music that would worship their values and their gods. Temples had theaters attached to them where people would go and watch performances that reinforced the gods. The temples even had big dining rooms for parties. And in the Roman world, sacrifice was not something that cost you something. That's a Christian idea. Sacrifice meant party. So what you would do is you'd, you know, you'd bring a cow to the temple and you'd give like Jupiter the hoof and you'd give a little something something to the priest because he, he lets, you use the, lets you use the fellowship hall. And then you'd take the prime rib and you'd go barbecue it and you'd get drunk with your friends and have this massive party. That was sacrifice. You'd worship through spending your money at the market. You'd buy little trinkets that you'd put on your work cart to bless your business. It was rituals and practices in all areas of life. And the Roman gods, they were the underpinning of society. They are what gave family and city and institutions, the economy, and even the government the right to power and authority. But it wasn't about morality, though, because the Roman gods, they weren't moral. They were jerks. And even the Romans that worshipped them believed that. There was no concept of sin. Morality was derived from human philosophy. There was no idea of actions being good or evil 
tied to the character of the God that makes the rules. There was no idea of that. It was just, we make the rules through human logic and human reason. So if you're like me, you, you're, we're feeling, you're probably feeling confused. Like I was at the beginning, I was trying to wrap my brain around this. And I was like, if it's not about belief and if it's not about morality, then what's with all of this worship and stuff? And I found there was, there's three basic reasons. You worship, that means you performed rituals and organized your life around behaviors to, one, keep bad stuff from happening so you wouldn't have an earthquake or your business wouldn't fail. It was the stuff that you did to prevent bad things from happening. Number two, to bring good stuff, to bring blessing, to bring happiness. And three, to ground your life and give it some sort of meaning and purpose to make you feel connected to people like your family or your city and made you a part of something. And in the Roman mind, all gods deserved worship. And if you didn't worship with us, they said, you're intolerant, you're disloyal, you're subversive, you disrespect the political order. In fact, bad things are going to happen to people because you're a hater. And when those bad things happen to those other people, it's all going to be your fault because you're so out of step with culture. In fact, Celsus, one writer, his name was Celsus, he accused the church of ripping family. He's like, you're tearing families apart. You're, you're turning mothers against their, their children and, and daughters against their fathers and sons against their mothers, and you're causing husbands and wives to have tension. You're a bad citizen. And if you don't do this stuff with us, if you don't come to our parties and our festivals and, and burn stuff in honor to our family gods, you're not going to be happy. And you're going to deny others their happiness too. But yet the Christians kept pushing forward. They refused to worship the gods of Rome no matter what. And to the Roman mind, to deny the gods worship was to deny their existence. But I know there's this big like, yeah, but Adam coming in your mind that there's a qualifier to this radical monotheism. You're like, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? See, here's what's, here's what's crazy. Well, we're, you're absolutely right. Christian monotheism is rooted in the Bible, which means it comes from the Old Testament which means that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God of Christians. And we believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob manifested himself in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the God of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament incarnate. And he died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb and he rose again on the third day. So we're like, weren't they mad at the Jews too? They weren't. That's the thing that blew my mind. Rome was okay. They were okay with Jewish monotheism because they thought it was, you know, it's just a weird thing that Jews did. It was an ethnic peculiarity. Jews were not a threat. Because even though they would express a disdain for the pagan gods, there's no indication that Roman Jews ever actually pushed the envelope to persuade the non-Jewish population to abandon their deities. They weren't very evangelistic. They abstained from worshiping the pagan gods. And as a, but they kept to themselves. So as a result, the Romans said, that's what those people do. They found the refusal to honor the gods offensive and annoying, but it certainly wasn't threatening. And they took it in stride because that's what those people from that culture do over there. 
And as well, Jews were thought of and thought of themselves as a distinct nation within a nation. They were their own unique people. And the Roman era public was aware of this, you know, self-determination. And they would generally accommodate the ethnic diversity that made up the empire. And when a pagan converted to Judaism, they became a Jew. And they would cease to become a member of their ancestral people. And so proselytizers, so people that converted to Judaism, effectively changed their ethnic status and could then easily justify their refusal to worship the gods they used to worship. It'd be like, you know, I would burn this incense to Jupiter, but I'm a Jew now, so I can't do that. Or I would worship family gods with grandma, but I can't do that because I'm now Jewish. I have a new ethnic membership and religious identity. So you're like, why in the world were the Jews allowed to practice their monotheism, but the church was getting persecuted for it when it was the exact same monotheism? Why were there so many accommodations in the Roman Empire for the, for the Jewish people, but they were literally lighting Christians on fire? Here's the one conclusion I draw is that the monotheism of the early church, while radical, and as followers of Jesus we know, true, while it was radical and it prompted the scorn and the annoyance of the Roman Empire, that in and of itself was not enough to prompt their persecution. The tipping point that made this new group an existential threat to the empire was not only their radical monotheism, but also their radical ethnic and social diversity. Let that sink in. The threat to the empire was the church that believed incredibly in one God was radically, ethnically, culturally, socially diverse. And Rome didn't like that. Because the empire liked to keep people in ethnic and geographical and class boxes. In ancient Roman culture, your status was determined by your immigration status, your religious background, your culture, your language. It was basically the modern-day equivalent of saying, all white people are like this, all Filipinos are like this, all black people are like this, all Asians are like this. You, it, it, they would judge people through a single, shallow, ethnic lens. And if you fit within an ethnic lens, then everything about you was already determined. Like your religious identity was conferred at birth. It was not a distinguishable conceptual category. And everyone was to honor the gods. And your own gods were supplied as part of your birthright. That's what you did as a result. Where you were from defined who you worship. The same with your family. Who your family was defined who you worshiped what career you had to find what you worshipped, your economic status. You had a box, the empire said. Stay in the box. Don't get out of the box. There was no precedent, according to Dr. Larry Hurtado, there was no precedent in culture for pagans to refuse to worship the gods because of a newfound worship of another new god. The response was severe because this was unprecedented. Celsus ridiculed Jesus. He called him a charlatan, a witch, 
He mocked the resurrection. He called the teachings of the church backwards and dumb. He called the leaders evil and manipulative charlatans who were too dumb to participate in public debate. Now, that's a contradiction of itself. He's like, you know, you're shifty, sneaky, but also stupid. He alleged that Christians were, they welcomed the worst kinds of people in their church. He's like, you understand who they let in those doors? Then in one of his writings, he was like, look, I would, I would tolerate them. If only they would acknowledge the gods of Rome too. But their questioning of the validity of the gods upon whom rested the social and political order of the day made them guilty of sedition. But again, there is a contradiction that is implicit within Celsus's critique. Why go through all this trouble? I mean, why write all this stuff about the church? If it was all just the dregs of society, the simpletons and the lower class and you know, all the people that are typically ostracized by the rest of culture, I mean, why would you go through the trouble of writing a critique that they couldn't even read? And the reason is because despite Celsus' protests that the church was only for, you know, the lowest of the low, the ruling elite had begun to powerfully convert too. It was cutting across every line in Roman society. And the people who mattered to Celsus were joining this new faith, and he could not fathom his elite Roman buddies eating and praying and worshiping as equals with slaves, the working class, and non-Roman citizens. Rome hated the diversity of the church. Rome loved tribalism. They loved identity politics. They loved silos where everyone has their own gods and all gods are equally valid. Because if all gods are equally valid, it simultaneously made all religions not matter since none of them was the ultimate truth. It kept people in their place. But despite the attacks, the church kept growing. And the people that were making up the church were from every language, every class, every culture, every nation. And together they would meet and they would worship Jesus as the only true and living God. And with one unified voice, they would insist that everyone else that they knew should do the same. And the thing that makes Christian conversion different from Jewish conversion is that when Christians were baptized in Jesus' name and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, the people that had been born again did not renounce their ethnic or cultural identity, but they did renounce their gods. And then, to make matters worse, at least according to Roman culture, they started talking crazy. People like the Apostle Paul started writing and preaching and proclaiming and encouraging others to do the same. What he wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 28, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing. These scriptures don't mean that, you know, uh, distinctions of gender or culture are erased. The scripture is pretty clear on gender distinction. The scripture is not teaching here that we're all now homogenous humanoid blobs. The church was immediately diverse. 
the Apostle Paul re referred to his ethnic heritage. We find ethnic and gender qualifiers and description of people all throughout the New Testament. Here's what the, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul meant. He meant that while someone's ethnicity and culture was recognized as part of their identity, Paul was also making it very clear that race, class, and culture was now secondary to a new, more powerful identity as members in Jesus' body. What Paul is saying in Galatians is that these distinctions are now irrelevant under the blood of Jesus. These distinctions no longer function as ways of justifying discrimination in the treatment of one another. Instead, because we all have been baptized into Christ, we now have a new identity as children of Jesus. And children of Jesus as our new identity supersedes all other identities and is now supposed to shape how we see ourselves and how we see other believers. That's what the early church believed. The Apostle Paul doubles down on it in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. In short, because we've all been baptized in Jesus' name, we are united by something more radical than what could ever divide us. The same blood that washed away your sins now covers mine too. So I don't care if you are a barbarian and I am a Greek. What matters is that we're brothers in Christ. And the Apostle Paul was not the only teacher of this, of this idea. Peter echoes this. This was throughout the whole church. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What's crazy to me is that the word generation means family, kindred, nation, race. See, the early church honestly believed they were part of a global movement that cut across every other line of social, cultural division. You name the thing that could divide people, they said that doesn't matter to us. We only need one thing to unite us together, they said, and that's Jesus. That's that we, we have been washed in the blood of Jesus. We are filled with the spirit of Jesus, and we are now his church. In the words of the 20th century Pentecostal historians, the color line has been washed away by the blood. See, here's my point in giving you this history lesson of the early church. If we don't get back to this way of thinking, we play into the spirit and heart of Rome that is alive and ruling our culture right now. See, I don't care where you stand politically. No matter where you stand, Rome's alive and well. The far left wants to make racial and ethnic identity the main identifier of people. The right wants to pretend it doesn't exist and all that matters is national identity. Then there are those in the far right. They basically want to do the same thing that the left is doing. 
And if you look at how the far left and far right is using identity politics as a means to consolidate power, it's the exact same tactic as the old Roman Empire. See, there are those in society right now that want to turn Christianity into a white American ideology to serve some political purpose, both on the far left and both on the far right. They want to turn our faith into some sort of ethnic or political ideology. And that's not who we are. See, I'm a Canadian. Christianity is not Canadian. It's not American. It's not European. It's, it's not any nation at all. It's a, it's a kingdom that's not of this world. And when we begin to identify our faith with the demographic, we risk be, becoming the kind of people that Celsus and Tacitus and Trajan and Nero wanted us to be. All throughout history, there are, there are tremendous evils that have been done in the name of Christianity. See, the great evil of the colonialism is one example. The great evil of the colonialism of the British Empire was that it weaponized Christianity as a means of oppressing others through imperialism and slavery to consolidate power and get more money. It was not an attempt to make everyone Christian as much as it was to make everyone subservient to the British Empire. And Christianity was used as a form of cultural integration and not discipleship. Its aim was loyalty to the King of England and not the King of Kings. And right now, today, there are those on both political spectrums that want to use Christianity as a leverage for a pathway to power. And we cannot fall into that trap because there is no room for racism in the church. None. There is no room for nationalism in the church. None at all. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your country. I'm not saying... You, you shouldn't love whatever your heritage is, but the idea that you think that you're better than somebody else because of the country you're a citizen of, there's no room for that. The idea that you should look at somebody who is of a different culture or demographic than you, there is no room for racism in the church at all. And speaking of race, our modern view of race is so dumb. See, culture is a real thing. It's a real unique identifier amongst people, and that's okay. And culture is as old as there have been people that have identified themselves around a unique identity that's centered on geography or language or some other actual characteristic. But the idea of race is new. It's only been around for a few hundred years. It's been around since the Enlightenment period. It's totally constructed and entirely contrived to be discriminatory, prejudicial, and a tool of corrupt and godless power. That's that's the modern idea of race. See, There's this period in history called the Great Enlightenment, and it really wasn't a Great Enlightenment. It was people backing away from God. It was people backing away from faith and turning to reason and science or the philosophy of science as the uh, great explainer for all things. And there are Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke and Immanuel Kant and Voltaire that they, along with others, comprise the ideas that make up modern Western democracies. But there's this dark little secret of the Enlightenment for all of the little things that they wrote about freedom and, and people being equal. There's this dirty little secret because John Locke and Immanuel Kant and Voltaire, they believe that humanity is comprised of several different species. And they called those species races. 
and they believed and they taught and they propagated that those differences of species can explain much of the differences of human behavior. In fact, there was another guy by the name of Cesar Lombrosos who developed this pseudoscience that analyzed skull and facial features to assist courts in determining whether or not somebody was guilty or innocent. And so basically they said, well, you know, when you look at the shape of somebody's face or how narrow or how wide their nose was or how how deep their forehead was, you know, you can just you just look at people and you know if they're from, you know, there, they're probably guilty. And because Cesar Lombrosos was part of the Western European Enlightenment period, you can imagine that the more European somebody's features were, the more likely he considered them to be innocent. And God help you if you're from anywhere else. See, Locke and Kant have written a ton about the Christian faith. And while their Christian faith told them that everyone was created equal, their Greek philosophical training, ironically the same philosophy that influenced all those that led Rome, their Greek philosophy led them to believe and justify that there were differences in the human species, different races. Kant argued that whites have the attributes, all of the attributes required for progress toward perfection, but black people are predisposed to slavery. Karl Marx, the founder of communism, the one loved by all those on the radical political left, he believed that some races had innate disabilities. He thought that, that people that had black or dark skin had innate disabilities, but he thought if you were Asian, you had cultural backwardness that made you, you know, have a disability. And in turn, all cultures had to become white Europeans by force. This is the modern idea of race. And because these people were also the major proponents of the philosophies that have shaped modern-day politics and Western democracies, we can see how this dirty little secret of the Enlightenment philosophized racism. Now, there's always been ignorance and people that have not liked people from certain cultures since time began and sin entered the human race, but race as an idea is new. Race theory says we can categorize people into groups on the basis of physical distinguishing characteristics like skin color or facial features. And this is stupid. We got to not believe in this lie. It's ripping apart our culture. And if we buy into the lie, it'll rip us apart too. The idea that you can group people by color like you do crayons is nuts. I, I'm in a, a downtown uh, area of my city. Our church is very diverse. And the idea of grouping all black people in my church as one homogenous group is nonsensical. We got people in our church from Nigeria, from the Congo, from Zimbabwe, from Jamaica, and to say, well, they're all the same because they have the same skin color is nonsensical. It's the same as, you know, me going to people that are uh, recent immigrants from Portugal, people that are recent immigrants from Germany and recent immigrants from Croatia in my church. I mean, like, they're all whites. They're all the same. No, they're very, very different. And when we group people according to color, we fail to see the actual and real distinctions that make human beings unique. And we fail to see people as individuals. Finally, the... the there's no such thing as different races. There's only one race, the human one. That's it.
There's no such thing as different races. There are no different species of people. There's one kind of person, a human person. Here's, here's my point. If we want to be the kind of earth-shaking, miracle-working, empire-collapsing, revival-sweeping, apostolic church, the first one in Acts was, we have got to, one, be radically monotheistic, that Jesus is it and there's no other options. And two, we have to be diverse like them. We have to reach everybody like we did, and our churches must cut across all lines. Cut across lines of gender, ethnicity, culture, economics, demographics. I mean, you name whatever box the world tries to put people in, the church blows those boxes up. We just tear them to pieces, and we all come together as one body and serve Jesus. Now, was the early church perfect? Nope, absolutely not. Read the book of Acts. There were issues. There were clashes. There was some racism. There was, there, was, there, there was some ethnic hostility. But the difference between the early church, and I'm just going to be honest, what I sometimes see, and we're getting better, what I sometimes see in the modern church is that the book of Acts church dealt with their issues. Sometimes we want to sweep ours under the rug. The early church dealt with whatever their their issues were that were keeping them from unity. And their answers and their solutions had nothing to do with politics. Had nothing to do with philosophical viewpoints that came from Greece or any other secular school. It had nothing to do with cultural pressures and it had everything to do with the fact that the one true living God, we have a revelation of him. And we have been baptized in his name. And we're in Christ together. And and these differences are secondary to our actual spiritual unity. These culturally constructed distinctives are less important and secondary to actual spiritual unity that has been brought upon us by the name and the blood of Jesus. So let's hammer this out, they said. They didn't go segregate and withdraw and have false unity by avoiding one another. They got together and they worked it out. See, we have a problem when we identify with people who are more like us politically or nationally or worse, the same color as us, than those who have been baptized into the same body. If you identify with people who look like you, despite the fact that they are not born again, if you have trouble connecting with people who are different in other ways, but are united with you in the most important way, that's a problem. We have a problem when we group people on the basis of this dumb idea of race and then make all of those people the same. No matter what the demographic is, all millennials are like this. All white people are like this. All Hispanics are like this. All black people are like this. All Europeans are like this. All anybody is like this. All baby boomers are like this. No, stop. It's not how we're supposed to do it in the church. When we denigrate an entire economic status as other or those people, whether it's the rich, the poor, that, that's what politics is doing right now. I don't know what it's like where you're at. We've got listeners that are you know, uh, in Brazil, in the UK, in Australia, in the United States, in Canada, and we all have different political systems. But right now where I'm at, 
there's like this hatred of, you know, there's the rich, there's the left, there's the right, and everybody's got everyone in this box. And they're beating the straw man that they have of this other person to death. They're turning whole groups and swaths of people into monolithic gelatinous blobs. We can't do that. We have a problem if we do that. We participate in that. If we, if we denigrate an entire group of people as an other and not an individual for whom Christ died. I know I'm sounding fired up, but this has been something I, I have been working on this, this podcast for about a month and a half to two months now. And I've been praying and seeking God about how to communicate this because God wants us to be unified around this radical revelation of the name of Jesus and to do that in a way that is for all people of all different distinctives. There are some things we're going to have to stop. We're going to have to stop buying into identity politics. It's all a power grab. Don't be a sheep. Don't get pulled into the hype and drama of it all. Don't live your life on Facebook and Twitter. Whether the news is fake or not, who cares? At the end of the day, for us, it matters very little who's in office when you have Jesus on the throne. So many Canadians are twisted up over who's premier in Ontario and uh, uh, because there's a guy on the, uh, on the right and then there's a bunch of people twisted up about who's in, in national power because there's a guy there who's on the left who's trying to shake things up. It doesn't matter who's in office when you've got Jesus on the throne. And while I, I don't doubt there, there are, you know, there are not good people, I believe there's some great people in political power and there are believers there who love and honor God and, and they want to do right and they want to make the right decisions. We've got to acknowledge that politics can't save us. We are not righteous. We are not holy. We are not made good because a system of government or party in power is in power. We are made all of those things by the blood of Jesus. And if you can't thrive, and if you can't feel good about your life, and you can't feel good about living for Jesus based on who's in political power, that's not, that's not cool because we're supposed to thrive everywhere. We survive in every environment. And when we fanboy over politics, we place a stumbling block over those who are lost and vote differently than we do. I live in a parliamentary democracy where we have three main parties and, and two minor political parties and a smattering of independents and people in my church vote for them all. You know what? I, I don't even care because it's not going to matter in the scope of eternity. Most of will do some good. They're going to do some bad. And generally, to be honest, they're going to try to look busier than what they really are while they make the other side look dumber than what they really are. Let's not get wrapped up on that. We got to stop posting divisive things on social media. And like, oh, Adam, that's, you know, that's just PC. No, it's not. Nothing said here is about political correctness. It's about what's in the Bible. And the Bible talks a lot about dissension and spreading division and being double-minded. I saw someone post a little while ago, when is White History Month? It was during Black History Month. I was like, are you kidding me? Why in the world would you take the time and effort to go on the internet and post something so offensive? It tells me you've bought into identity politics. You live your whole life with an us and them mentality, or at least you do when you're on the internet. And maybe you just click share and weren't thinking. You're like, oh, yeah, when's my month? 
the fact of the matter is, everyone who saw that has a different color of skin than white. They decided, man, I'm not going to that church because they don't like me. Let's not post divisive things. Let's not get involved in the machine that's built by man that one day will be destroyed when Jesus returns back into the earth. We got to stop putting people in buckets who are different from us. Sometimes we can live life with blinders on. This is everybody. We view people like us as individuals and people not like us as a group. So everyone who looks like me is an individual and unique person with their own personality. But if you're not like me, you are representative of the whole. And that's everywhere. That's not culture. That's not just ethnicity. That's, that's not just language. That's economics. That's demographic status. We have to stop separating on the basis of race, which is an irrational notion. The only time that a church should ever worship separately is if that service would be in a different language. That's it. We have to stop segregating on the irrational notion of race. The only time people should worship separately is if the service is going to be in a different language because we're trying to reach a a group of people in our city that their language is not the majority language of our church. We have to stop thinking our way of doing it is the right one. If it's not in the Bible, let's not get hung up on it. And this cuts across cultural lines. I know you may be feeling nervous right now because I said this, but I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking about holiness. I'm not talking about morality and ethics. I'm not talking about how one is saved. I'm talking about the things that we do and the way we do them because of where we're from, whether it's urban versus rural, suburban versus urban or suburban versus rural, north versus south, east versus west, upper income versus lower income or middle income versus you know working class. We all have in our little pockets of distinctions that are actual, we have little ways of doing things. They stop thinking our way of doing it is the right one. When I go in, I, into the United States and or when I go into another country and, and, and I'm there uh, uh, serving and representing or preaching, I'm not saying, hey, everyone should have parliamentary democracies or everyone should do this. or every, When I went to the UK, I wasn't like, you guys are driving on the wrong side of the road. Why? Because it doesn't matter. So we're going to stop doing some stuff. And here's what we got to start doing. We have to start viewing people as individuals first. Shout out to my friend um, Calvin for this amazing conversation we had today. He said God views us as individuals. God, God doesn't look at us and go, ah, there's like an upper middle income, college educated, southern, single white female. He goes, there's a soul I died for. When the scripture speaks of the Lord imparting gifts, he doesn't qualify it with culture. Here's another thing we got to start doing. We got to start building relationships with people, intentionally building relationships with people that are different from us. Different cultures, different demographics. We have to reach out. We got to break outside of the box. We also have to celebrate diversity because showing and celebrating our diversity highlights our unity. It reminds us that what we have in common in doctrine and experience and lifestyle is far greater than what we have in any other perceived differences. Again, and just to double down on it, we got to remember the race is a modern construct of a time period 
when Western culture was backing away from God as the source of truth and turning to the fallacy of human reason and philosophy. This means that, that we have to believe wholeheartedly that when someone converts, they're not required to change their national or cultural or ethnic identity. They're simply, simply required to follow Jesus. That's all they got to do. They got to follow Jesus and pursue holiness. This means we're going to start reaching and discipling everybody. What are the demographics of your community? What are the demographics of the city that you live in or the area your church is trying to reach? Seek to be representative of your city in your church. Our churches should be as diverse economically, ethnically, demographically as the cities our churches are in. And so if we find ourselves with a gap, we got to pray and we got to fast for the Lord to give us an open door and give us wisdom on how to best reach. We've got to intentionally be representative in our events and on our stages and on our platforms. We have got to provide opportunities for other people from other uh, nationalities and cultures and ethnic and demographic lines to feel like they are a part of our church. And this means no matter who you are or where you're from, we're going to start being more okay with being uncomfortable. This means we've got to be willing to talk about the issues. If there's a hot-button issue in culture dealing with a, you know, a particular demographic, rather than just hit and share on Facebook, why don't you pick up the phone and call a brother or a sister or sister in Christ who is part of that demographic and go, hey, help me understand don't don't feel threatened. Don't get defensive. Seek to understand. Be, try to figure out what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. Because after all, the scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Esteem others as better than you. And that's not just people like you, because the early church, we, we discovered through the words of Paul and through the words of Peter, everything that could distinguish people and put them in a box was superseded by the blood of Jesus. So before we rush to judgment, on any hot-button issue in culture, whether it is ethnic, whether it is language, whether it is political, whether it is economic, whether it is a demographic of age, rather than simply writing people off like the rest of the world and, and throwing up your walls to protect your people, whoever your people may be. Pick up the phone, better yet meet in person, and have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ and put yourself in their shoes and walk into the conversation with the idea that this person, I'm going to esteem them as better than me. They are better than me. I'm not in this for me. I'm also in this for them. When we start having those conversations, 
when we start getting with other people that are not like us, it, it's going to change. It's going to change the way you think and feel. I, I, I had the amazing privilege, Stephanie and I, to go to Brazil and, and do ministry there and, and preach a youth convention. I remember I was, I, I, was in, I was in the home of a pastor. and When I got back to my hotel, I, I cried. I was so overwhelmed. I was like, this is my family. I, I didn't understand a word of Portuguese. Everything was either translated or, you know, we just found a way to communicate some other way, you know, pointed at food and, and we figured out what the other person wanted. That was okay. Because these, this was my family. This was my brother in Christ. I have a kinship with people that I can't even speak their language. I can't even communicate with them. But there's a bond of the spirit when I was when I was in when I was in church services, both the youth convention and some local churches, the moment the presence of God would begin to fall, I instantly knew what was going on. I'm sorry, even just thinking about it, it's I remember being in in a church service and the Lord began to break out and God began to move instantly you knew what was happening because the spirit was moving and we were praying and we were shouting and we were jumping and clapping our hands and speaking in tongues. And you knew when the gifts of the spirit were going to be in operation simply because of the Holy ghost that was uniting us. Romans 10, 12 says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call Upon him. And while I will always seek to celebrate you, while I always seek to celebrate your family or your culture, those things are not going to be the things I look for. I'm looking for Jesus. I'm looking for Christ in you. The world may hate itself and divide itself and fight within itself and put people in boxes, but in the church of Jesus Christ, We won't just tolerate one another. We're going to love one another. We won't just come to the same building and say we're going to be friends. We're going to be more than friends. I had the privilege of of preaching in Mississauga, um, a suburb of Toronto or a city just outside of Toronto. And uh, for my friend, Pastor Akil Thompson and his church, his church invitation cards are unbelievable. And my favorite one had church people on it. And it was like church people was scribbled out like it had been crossed out with a, with a Sharpie or it was designed to be crossed out what it looked like crossed out with a Sharpie and over top, it just said family. We're not church people. We're family. We're going to be family. When you're here, you're family. When you're in Christ, you're family. It doesn't matter where you're from, how much money you make, your level of education, what kind of vehicle you drive, what neighborhood you live in. We're family. This is what the Bible teaches. And what I love about the Bible is that was written by real people. And they don't just offer us theological reflection. They, they actually show us. Paul, he lived this. Jesus, he practiced this. How do we know? There's this little obscure verse in Romans 16. Romans 16 verse 13 says, Greet Rufus, a choice man of God. Also his mother, 
and mine. Rufus, he's a dear friend of Paul, and some translations use chosen in the Lord to speak of his calling and anointing. Some translations use the word choice. Choice indicates he was he was well-known. Brother Bernard's commentary uh, on the book of Romans, he said the language of choice means he had a special call of God in his life. But then the Apostle Paul, he says, oh, greet Rufus, this man of tremendous anointing, man of tremendous call, but also greet his mother and mine. Now, the Apostle Paul is not speaking of two women. He's saying, greet Rufus and greet Rufus's mom. She's my mom too. Now, Rufus was not the Apostle Paul's natural brother. He's like a brother. Rufus's mother was not Paul's natural mother, but rather she had taken the Apostle Paul under her wing and treated him as if, he was her own son too. Another translation says, Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Basically, Paul's saying, Hey, can you greet, can you greet my friend Rufus and, and someone say hi to my church mom? Somebody say hi to my church mom and anybody who has not grown up in church. And when they've converted to Christianity and, and they've become born again and none of their family joined them, none of their family was a part, you ask any convert that made it, they got a church mom. They have an elder in the church that simply took them under their wing and looked out for them. See, Paul had forsaken all for Jesus. We don't know anything about his family. Maybe they had passed away. Maybe they had rejected him like so many people that convert to Christianity today. Probably for Paul, like, like many that are listening to this podcast, the, the church the church was his only family left. And when, when Paul would come back, and he was beaten and he was sick and he was weary and he was hungry and he just needed a place to sleep he needed someone to make him a hot meal, a place to call his home before he went back out and poured himself out for the gospel. He went to the home of his friend's mom. Like, why in the world is this significant? And what in the world does this have to do with the subject at hand? The significance is in who the husband of Paul's church mom was. The significance is understanding who Rufus's father was. See, in Mark chapter 15, verse 16 through 21, it says, Then the soldiers led him away into a hall called Praetorium, and they called the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns on his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed, and they spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. You haven't figured it out. The him is Jesus. And then when Jesus could not, when Jesus could not walk any farther, 
verse 21 says, they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country, passing by to bear his cross. See, the Mark wrote his gospel to Rome. And one of the things that most scholars across the literature I've read is that Mark usually never names minor characters. He, he barely even names major characters. But yet, he, he takes great care to let the Roman readers know that Simon, the father of the powerful, well-known, anointed, much-loved Rufus, Simon was the man to carry the Lord's cross. We don't know what Jesus said to Simon as he carried his cross, or even Jesus, if he said anything at all. All we know is that when Simon carried that cross up to Calvary, at some point, that interaction with Jesus so profoundly moved him that he became a believer. I don't know if he got the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost or not, but, but he, he became sold out. And his sons became preachers. And his wife became the adoptive mother of the most prolific writer and missionary of Scripture. And the significance and the relevance is where Simon is from. Mark says, Simon was a Cyrenian. And Cyrene is modern-day Tripoli, the capital city of Libya in northern Africa. And many scholars believe that Simon of Cyrene in Mark is Simeon, identified as the black man in Acts 13. That Simeon, the black man in Acts 13, he's one of the prophets and teachers of the church of Antioch that laid his hands on the apostle Paul and Barnabas and commissioned them in the name of Jesus to take their first Gentile missionary journey. Many scholars believe that Simon of Cyrene and Simeon, the black bishop of Acts 13, are the same man. Now, I, whether that's true or not, I don't know. All we do know is that Simon, the man who carried Jesus' cross, is the same man who is the father of Rufus and the same man who was the husband to the adoptive mother of Paul. You see it now? Paul a Hebrew, a Jew with a lineage that gave him privileged status amongst his own ethnicity, calls an African woman in the Roman church, my mom, and her son, a choice man of God. All because while Jesus was on his way to Calvary, as he was marching up that hill to bear the full fury of God's judgment upon sin, as blood dripped from his brow and strength drained from his body, the Spirit of God compelled a Roman soldier to pull an African man out of the crowd to carry his cross. And together, as Middle Eastern Jewish Jesus and North African Simon carry that cross together, Jesus is taking time to remind us all that what I'm about to do is for everybody. What I'm about to do is for everyone. No one is excluded for any reason whatsoever. 
And if Jesus would go to great lengths to say, I'm for everybody, I want to be for everybody too. And I want the church to be for everybody too. And I believe that if you're listening to this right now, you're saying, yes, we will be for everybody too. So let the church echo. Let the church echo what Paul and Peter said. No matter where you come from, oh man, no matter what you look like, no matter what language you speak, we're reaching for you. And together, let's unify because we're going to reach everybody. We're going to go everywhere. And we're going to do it all for Jesus. Every ethnicity, every culture, every demographic. No one's getting excluded from the gospel message. And if we will make that our hearts cry, that along with our radical, sold-out declaration of the revelation of Jesus Christ, if we will couple with that a biblical interpretation and understanding of diversity, we're going to be unstoppable. And we're going to see God use us to reach out to people from everywhere. And the modern-day apostolic church will see worldwide global revival in a way that dwarfs every other revival that history has ever seen. Together, we're going to do it. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback on this podcast. I, I don't claim to have all the answers, to have all this figured out. I'm going to tell you what. If we can spark a conversation that pushes us towards unity, we're going to be better for it. If there's someone that you feel could use this podcast, please share it with them. Please subscribe if you have not already. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Next episode, we're going to deal with the idea of what it means to believe that there's only one God. Thanks for listening.